You know the emotion. And you know the situations that trigger it for you. I mean, maybe it's parents who are unreasonable and demanding, whether you're 14 or 40. Maybe it's a boss who has unrealistic expectations and his demands cause you to work 40, 60, 80 hours a week. Maybe it's circumstances in your life that are out of your control. But whatever it is, you've suffered one too many injustice in your life, one too many hardship, one too many slight to let it go one more time. And you get that uncomfortable feeling that starts as a knot in your stomach and it rises up to tension in your chest and you feel it coming. And the adrenaline starts to rise and you feel that crimson color that starts in your neck and it starts to move up into the cheeks on your face and you feel it coming. And the emotions start to build inside of you and you just feel like you can't control them anymore. And on the outside, people may perceive you as controlled and collected, but inside of you, everything just wants to lash out or scream or rebel. That's the situation that we encounter, the emotionally charged scenario for Daniel and hundreds of young men in Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Here's the scene. Nebuchadnezzar is king of this vast empire. And he's done this classic pillage and plunder all over the Middle East, including the tiny country of Judah where Daniel lived. He's on his way back home. And Nebuchadnezzar has gathered up all of the royalty, all of the nobility in this land, taken them with him as slaves, including Daniel. Now, hopeless and 900 miles away from home, these young men have been gathered up by their captors, taken away from their families. And Daniel chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that the king took these men away because he wanted them to serve as his personal servants. And he was really choosy about his servants. And in the selection process to decide who would be his servants, injustice after injustice is piled on these young men. First, first, these boys were, were subjected to a beauty pageant because the king only wanted to surround himself with good-looking, strong, healthy young men. All the ugly boys, all the weak boys were sent home. And you can just start to feel the anger rise in these young men. Then they were subjected to an intelligence test. Were you smart enough to make the grade? Not just the dumb kids, but the average kids were sent home next. And the anger rose some more. Who does this king think he is? And then, the final injustice. Their social skills were tested. Fourteen! 15, 16-year-old boys were subjected to a test that checked their poise and their dignity. They were challenged, and the socially inept, if you had any hint of that, well, they were just swept away as unfit. Whether you made the cut or not, any God-fearing, any self-respecting Jewish male in the room that day would have been angry, would have been incensed at being deported, degraded, and demeaned by this godless foreign king. And you can bet that there was more than one Jewish boy in the room that day that wanted to act out, wanted to lash out, wanted to cry out in anger and rage and rebellion. So how about it? You in touch with your anger now? I feel like I need to have some chamomile tea or something. It's... We get those angry feelings sometimes, don't we? Okay, I do. 
Every point, I think, in our lives, some of us are going to have those feelings. We're going to have those circumstances in our lives. We're going to have a boss or a, not me, but maybe you, a spouse that's going to push us to the edge or a circumstance that's going to drive us to have that kind of a feeling. We're going to have that kind of a day. We're going to have that point that's going to press us to where we want to explode. We want to rebel against some kind of a rule or authority figure that we judge as unfair or unjust. Or we just simply don't understand. But outright rebellion? Well, that just doesn't, it just seldom gets the results that we want or what we desire in our hearts, in our life, in our relationship with God or with others. And in fact, if you take a close look at what the scriptures say, God considers rebellion a sin. So there must be another way to handle those feelings that we have because God has given us our emotions. So what do we do with all that? Last week, Gordon, uh, in his message, introduced us to this concept of outliers. And he described an outlier as an ordinary person who lives an extraordinary life. We've borrowed the concept of outliers from a book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who also says this, that an outlier is someone who's able to make sense of the world in a way that others can't. Daniel was certainly one of those people, and it was true throughout his life. Daniel must have had those same strong feelings that day in Nebuchadnezzar's meat market as he paraded all those teenage boys around and chose his servants And yet he reacted differently than you might have expected. He did end up being one of Nebuchadnezzar's servants. And he was served in Nebuchadnezzar's court. In fact, he ended up serving four different kings in two different empires over the next 70 years of his life. That's an extraordinary life, especially for a Jewish slave. Daniel was faced with the same challenges and the same opportunities as every other young man in Babylon that day. So what was it that made him different? What was it? It wasn't money. It wasn't noble birth. It wasn't good looks, mental acumen, or social poise. Daniel was one of scores of young men that day selected to serve the king. Every one of them fit that criteria. Daniel didn't stand out. What was it that made Daniel's life turn out to be so Extraordinary. I think it was three decisions that I can see as I studied Daniel's life. Three decisions that he made that changed everything for him. And I think Daniel chapter 6 is just one of the examples that gives us those three decisions. Let me tell you what they were. First, Daniel lived from strong convictions. Convictions that he held from his teenage years all the way through his life. Daniel made a decision early on that no matter what happened in his life, he was going to do what God said. No matter what the consequences, from his adolescence to his old age, those convictions were tested and he lived by them. One such test of those convictions happened in Daniel 6. All of Daniel chapter 6 happened in the Middle East. Now, just to give you a context, if you look at a map, this actually takes place in what we would today look at and consider the country of Iran. Now, Daniel had served faithfully under two kings in the nation of Babylon, and he watched as that empire was conquered, came under the control now of Darius the Mede. King Darius, in order to maintain control of his new empire, divided this entire empire into 120 provinces. 
He put each one of those provinces under the control of one individual. And then to help maintain control, he said, I'm going to put three people over 40 of those provinces. And essentially said, I want to make sure that those provinces stay loyal to me, and more importantly, that they pay their taxes. Because it's all about money, right? I mean, that's what's going on in Springfield right now. It's all about money. So, in that process, Daniel apparently was appointed at 80 plus years old, was appointed as one of those three people to oversee 40 provinces. He did so well in the task that Darius quickly said, he shouldn't just be one of three, he should be over this whole venture. Now that created some jealousy in the ranks. So much jealousy that the other administrators, Daniel 6.4 says, the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Now think about that. Daniel spent his entire life in public service. More than 70 years. And he's lived an exemplary life. His convictions have given him wisdom in the changing circumstances of his life. They kept him one step ahead of temptation. His convictions earned him long-term respect with three, four now different kings. So much so that when his political enemies put him under the microscope, they can't find anything to criticize or condemn. Thought occurred to me this week, what if we went to Washington, just picked a random politician, put him under a political microscope? What? Never mind, we won't go there. Daniel lived his entire life making one decision at a time based on his convictions. And time and again, as you read about his life, the same things are said. He was a man who was faithful, responsible, trustworthy. In a culture that worshipped every god under the sun, Daniel remained faithful to the one true and living God. You know, I think so many times we fall guilty to the trap of blaming our culture for what's happening. We blame our culture as our enemy. We think that somehow it's the fault of the movie industry or the music industry or art or the television industry that our values are slipping in our society. Maybe it's the fault of our educational system that our values are slipping, but it's not. When you read Daniel's story, you find that if we do that, it's just taking the easy way out. In Daniel's life, he didn't fear the culture around him. We don't have to either. Daniel worked within the culture. He lived within the culture. He actually was educated within the culture of the Babylonian Empire. And he maintained an integrity to his faith within that culture. He faced far more pressure and persecution than we ever will. And he didn't didn't expect the culture to know or support his convictions. He knew what his convictions were and he chose to live by them. And so many times we find in his story that the people around him expressed faith in God because of Daniel's, Daniel's commitment to simply live out humbly what he believed. That was a key part of what made his life so extraordinary. The second key decision Daniel made was that 
he made prayer a priority in his life from an early age. Daniel's co-workers, we find in the story, weren't simply content to find that his character was above board. They lived by his convictions. They didn't stop there. The story goes on to say, uh, so they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So they began laying this elaborate scheme that would result in Daniel's death. In a backroom meeting, they cooked up a scheme to use Daniel's prayer life against him. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, and they're just dripping with sarcasm. You have to hear this as they say it. Long live Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue a sign, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. It seems harmless enough on the surface. But the underlying drama is pretty intense. By pretending their loyalty to the king and by appealing to Darius' vanity, these officials convinced the king to create a law that would trap Daniel. They did it without disclosing their true intentions because they knew that the king had a deep affection for Daniel. With this law, Darius wasn't declaring himself God because he had an empire in which there were literally hundreds of gods and Daniel was free to worship his God because it was a polytheistic culture. He was simply declaring that for the next 30 days as a sign of allegiance to the king of the new empire, anyone who prayed would pray to him as an intermediary to all of the gods that were worshipped in the empire. It was simple enough. It was harmless enough in the king's eyes. Except for that one man who was living with strong convictions. So when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went to his home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. Now, it had been 70-plus years since he was taken as a slave from Jerusalem. As far as we know from the end of Daniel's life, he never saw Jerusalem again. But he opened his window three times a day with his face set towards Jerusalem and prayed to God. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. And then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking God for help. Did you catch the words in that verse? He knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. He prayed three times a day just as he had always done. His prayer life was so regular, so predictable, such a priority in his life that his enemies could use it against him. Now, that's pretty impressive. I read that this week again and again and again, and I thought, that's the kind of prayer life I would love to have. I mean, I'll just confess to you, I don't. 
It's the kind of life I'd love to have, wouldn't you? Prayer wasn't something Daniel did as a protest because of the king's new law. It wasn't something he organized as a showy demonstration in a public setting done defiantly against this new law. It was just a regular, common part of his life. And it stands as a humble example to you and me for the need for prayer to be a priority if we want to be living extraordinary lives. To make prayer a priority before something happens that we sense its urgency. To, make, to learn about prayer, to learn how to pray, to begin establishing it as a regular habit before we find ourselves in a tough situation like Daniel was about to be in. The third key decision Daniel made had to do with those times when he was backed into a corner, times when he appeared to have no way out in his life, times when his convictions about following God conflicted with the laws or the practices or the expectations around him. And in those situations, Daniel disobeyed respectfully. Most of the rest of the story is known uh, to many of us. Daniel's accusers reported his actions to the king. And the king is now caught in the trap that's been set for him. And even though it deeply grieves him, the king is forced to obey the law that he's written, and Daniel must be executed. So Daniel's arrested. He's thrown into a den of hungry lions. A large stone is rolled over the entrance to that den, and the king's royal seal is put across that stone so that it prevents anyone from having any opportunity of rescuing Daniel. Now, Persian custom allowed that if someone were executed like this, if they were thrown into the den of lions, and if by some chance they survived the torture that was ahead of them until morning, if they survived, then they could be freed and allowed to go free. They could be pardoned. And so the scripture account tells us that very early the next morning, at dawn's first light, the king hurried out, has the stone rolled away, and calls for his friend to see if by some miracle he might still be alive. Now pause the story and think. What if you're Daniel, the octogenarian, and you've just spent a night in a den with hungry lions? What would your first words be? I mean, you've been thrown in. You've spent a night with the lions. You were sent there by political entrapment concocted by people you've worked closely with for several years. If that's the scenario, what are the first things you're going to say when that stone's rolled away? I mean, you had all night to think about this. How would you react? I mean, near the top of the list for me would be get me out of here followed closely by, get those guys. We sometimes read these Bible passages and we sanitize them a little bit. We miss the emotion that might be in there. We leave some of the humanness out. Daniel's first words show respect for the king and the difficult situation that he's been put into. They honor God and the king. His first words were, Long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they wouldn't hurt me. 
declawed them too, I would suggest. For I've been found innocent in his sight. I've not wronged you, your majesty. Daniel had broken the law, and he'd done it knowingly. Knowing that disobedience would probably cost him his life. He went into the lion's den without a protest, without accusations of entrapment against his co-workers, and with no appeal. And now he exits the lion's den exonerated by his God and his king. What I love about Daniel's respectful disobedience, about, by his quiet refusal to give up his convictions, is that that whole process for Daniel had an amazing impact on the people around him. Darius, the king of the empire, breaks into spontaneous praise of God as the living, eternal, and powerful God. And he issues a decree to all of the empire that they should do the same. What I love about Daniel's disobedience, about his standing up for his convictions, both here and if you read Daniel chapter 1, is that he did it in a way that didn't devalue or demean or demoralize anyone around him. Daniel stood up for what he believed in throughout his life, quietly and faithfully. And when necessary, when the laws of the country conflicted with God's laws, he would respectfully disobey or disagree. His actions foreshadowed what's commanded of us in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, which says, Live wisely. Live wisely among those who are non-believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. See, I believe that God calls us to this idea of disagreeing with people or disobeying, with law, disobeying laws when they conflict with God's laws without being rude or disagreeable or rebellious. I believe that that's not only possible, but it's what God expects of us. He expects us as his followers to be models of his love and grace in every area of our lives. No matter what people we encounter or what we might disagree with them about. So if I truly believe, and I do to the core of my being, that I've never looked into the eyes of a person that doesn't matter to God, then I should follow that conviction in every interaction that I have with them. Even when I'm dealing with a heated, emotionally charged issue. Even then, the conversation should be gracious and attractive. See, I don't see a lot of that today. Honestly. I don't see that in a lot of the protests and the rallies that happen. I don't see that in a lot of comments on Facebook and blogs by well-meaning Christians. I think we miss the point that while we might disagree on an issue, the person we're disagreeing with isn't our enemy. They matter deeply to God. 
And they should matter to us. So even when we disagree, especially when we disagree, our words and our actions should be gracious and attractive, for God's sake. Otherwise, we might win the argument, and we might turn them off, embitter them towards the God of grace and love. See, I think for me it comes down to the idea that our world does need rebellion. But it's a different kind of rebellion we need. We need a rebellion of grace and kindness and love. A rebellion that replaces the anger and the meanness and the self-centeredness that's so prevalent in our world today. We need a rebellion in how we treat each other, especially those we disagree with, especially those we barely know. We need a rebellion that's based in the deep-seated conviction that we love not because people deserve it or because they agree with us. We love because God first loved us. Because of the grace that's been shown to us even when we didn't deserve it. And I believe that if we gave ourselves to that kind of a rebellion... If churches across America gave themselves to that kind of rebellion, there aren't enough seats in the churches that exist to contain the people that would come through the doors to investigate the God of grace, the God of love, who is fundamentally changing how people treat each other. The God of grace and love who's making a difference in how we interact with each other in a world that just doesn't understand grace and love, even when we don't agree. I think the world is ready for that kind of a rebellion. Don't you? I think what they're waiting for, hoping for, looking for, is for one of us to take the lead.